Welcome to Glioblastoma, aka GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories of GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on the show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided on this show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Dave Bolton, welcome to Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. It is a pleasure to have you on the show and be here with you in London. So exciting to finally meet you in person. Yeah, it's a pleasure to meet you as well, and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who don't know you, who is Dave Bolton? Tell us a little bit about your background and about yourself. Well, where do you want to start? Um, So very quickly, uh, I was that annoying kid at school who just excelled at all sports, uh, and sport became my whole life. I left school with decent grades. Uh, and followed my father and my grandfather's footsteps and joined the military, uh, joined the Royal Air Force. I served a tour of uh, Operation uh, Southern Watch, which was out in uh, Iraq, based out of uh, Ali Al Salam Air Base in Kuwait. And I was attached to the US Marines and the US Special Forces. Absolutely loved my time out there. And that's kind of where I truly grew up because being that kid who was great at all sports came me a bit cocky. Once you're out there, you lose all that. And that's kind of where the foundation for my life really uh, set up because you suddenly learn out there critical thinking, teamwork, discipline, respect. It's just a real, real eye-opener. I left I left the forces uh, three years later. So I joined at 18, left at 21 and joined Merseyside Police, which is which is in Liverpool. Flew through the ranks, uh, putting that work ethic that I've always had, that relentless work ethic into it and became quite successful. Unfortunately, on September the 6th, 2004, on a day off, uh, I went for a bike ride out into Wales with my colleague, who was my partner uh, on, the, on, the, on the job in the police. Went into a corner. Uh, unfortunately, as I've come into the corner, if those who knows how to ride a bike, you come off the power, you lean into the corner, then you come on the power. As I've come on the power, there's been diesel and gravel all over the road. Back end's kicked out. One thing you should never do is brake on a corner. But my natural reaction, that autonomous reaction, was to jab that brake. Mm-hmm. That sat the bike upright and followed its path onto the wrong side of the road. Okay. Usually that wouldn't be too bad. But unfortunately for me, about 20 feet was a 23 to an articulated lorry. When they say time stands still, trust me, it does. I had a full-blown conversation with myself, which must have felt like it was about 10 minutes, milliseconds. That actually, that conversation saved my life. The upshot from that was I had to jump from the bike. So I shifted all my weight onto the left-hand side, jumped from the bike, landed on my back and started to slide across onto the, the left-hand side of the road, oh which God. is the right side of the road for us. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I always say fortunately, it depends how you view life. Uh, I went under the back wheel of the cab and then the front two wheels of the Arctic trailer. I knew it was bad because my left leg um, snapped up over my head and was lying at a right angle. I didn't know how bad it was, but I knew it was bad. I completely shattered all my, uh, my right leg. I'm a massive believer in faith. There was an off-duty paramedic who was behind me, so she must have saved my life because little did I know that my leg from below my knee had dislocated and had completely severed. Uh, I only had a couple of veins that was holding it together. Uh, completely degloved my leg. That means I got no skin whatsoever. I lost three quarters of my calf. I had to have six external pins. Uh, completely shattered my right leg and broke my kneecap into six places. Oh now they say it's quite hard to break your kneecap, but obviously I like to show off and so I broke it six times. Was in it, I had to be airlifted to Glencluid uh, Hospital, which is in Wales. And I was in a coma for a week. I was later told that I was 30 seconds away from dying. So if I hadn't got to that hospital in 30 se- with seconds, I wouldn't be here now. So I always kind of say, imagine that helicopter, that air ambulance was on a different call, wouldn't be here today. If that pilot 
had gone to the toilet, had gone to makeup, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. So I believe in fate all the way through. Cut a very, very long story short. I was four or five months in hospital where I was told that I'd never walk properly ever again. And if by some chance I do, I will always have a, a stroller, a Zimmer frame or a walking stick at 23. Having just found out that my, uh, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, was pregnant. I just refused to accept that, that I would never walk again. I had physiotherapy where I only had, because basically because my leg was left straight for so long, when they removed the pins, my knee didn't bend because mm -hmm. scar tissue had grown into that actual joint. I went through two manipulations whilst under anaesthetics. That's where they put you to sleep and they just crank your leg as hard as they can. On the second one, uh, my leg still only had 20 degrees movement flexion. Dr. Starmer said to me, unfortunately, if we'd have put an ounce more pressure on, we'd have snapped your femur into about two or three places, which obviously yeah. they can't do. Worked with physiotherapies that got me to 25%, and that was a kind of it. I was told that that's it. Mm -hmm. Paid to see a private specialist, top orthopedic surgeon, who said, I really feel for you, but there's no way that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. The only way you'll get that life sort of life back running is if we amputate your leg below the knee to give you the best chance of prosthetic. Mm -hmm. Again, I refused. And then I spent the next nine to 12 months uh, rehabilitating myself quite brutally. I had chairs upside down, me, my white girlfriend, wife, sorry. I'm not having an affair. It's just I've been with her since I was 16. Well, actually 15, she'll kill me for saying that. So it's like, I always get confused. So yeah, so she'd be like putting weights slowly on my, just understanding that that ounce more pressure might break it. For three, four hours, tears down my eyes, like in wow. agony then. When we took it off, I couldn't stand due to the pain. But this is what I knew I needed to do to try and give myself the best chance of being able to walk without a walking stick. And as you can see, uh, 12 months later. In, I can one minute before podcast <laughs> recording time. I'm looking great. I know. Uh, and then, yeah, so I, I you know, I, I can, I can run, walk, snowboard, mountain climb. I love doing outdoor stuff. That's, that's what I'm all about. The only time you can kind of see there's something different is if I sprint because I don't have that full mechanics because I only have a hundred degree movement. Then kind of, it was back in work within nine months of the accident. I then went back to kickboxing, you know, K1, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, because that's what I did just before that crash. I'd just been selected to get in the Great Britain team mm -hmm. to go to fight in the world championships in Germany. Obviously, that was wow. taken away from me. So I wanted to get back involved in that kind of sport. I went to see me down to the gym, the dojo, and spoke to the guy. And he said, why don't you look after the kids? So I did. I loved the youth development, bringing them on. And then one of the lads needed some sparring. So I kind of got in the ring and sparred with them and found by changing the way I thought. And I actually thought I was still quite good. Started fighting again. I became ISK Northern title champion, Welsh champion, British champion. And then I got a phone call from the Great Britain team saying they want me to come down for trials. So this was for me, putting wow. the universe back right. I had that chance in 2004 mm -hmm. and obviously it was taken away from me. I dedicated everything. As I say, I'm relentless. No one saw me. Uh, six months, I'd be up at five o'clock in the morning uh, going for a long run. I'd be in work. I'd go over to Next Gen, which is a uh, mixed martial arts place in, in Liverpool, who actually wear Paddy the Baddy, Patrick Pemlet and Molly McCann are at the moment, quite famous in the UFC. Mm -hmm. And then I'd come, I'd eat police officers still at this point. Then I'd eat me um, tea or dinner. And then I'd go back to the gym. Wow. And this was my life. And then at weekends, I'd be up and down from Nottingham to show that I was serious. Training was, say, eight, uh, 10 o'clock. I'd be there at eight. Training would finish at four. I'd be there till six. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to show I'm going to put more commitment than anyone. That's well, so wild. Just yeah. like I know, I like kickboxing as well. Yeah. And I do an hour class at the gym twice a week and I cannot walk. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't imagine it's doing a level, it for yeah. eight hours a day. Yeah. You used to have people coming in and like, yeah, I've done, <laughs> I, I do long distance running. I said, all right, yeah, go on the bag. And then when I, after two or three rounds, they're completely done. It's exhausting. Oh, yeah. But I made the squad and on November uh, the 2nd, I think it was, 2009, I flew out with the Great Britain team to Pisa, Italy, um, where we did the opening ceremony. And after 10 fights, in four days, I made the final. Uh, I went into the final with a uh, fractured right wrist wow. and three broken toes, but adrenaline is an amazing thing. And after a hard fought fight, I became world uh, kickboxing champion. I know, yeah. Very cool. So, yeah. Uh, fast forward, uh, life's going really good. 
It's uh, now 2014, May the 1st, never May the 2nd, because my daughter's birthday. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, a detective sergeant in Merseyside Police in charge of a covert unit dedicated for gun crime. Me being me, I was, I'd leave home at like six in the morning. Didn't have to be until late, but I wanted, I was in charge of all intelligence mm-hmm. in the area, uh, all the covert operations. So I wanted to get my head around everything before briefing my team. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also in charge of being the single point of contact. Any of our nominals, criminals from the Liverpool Merseyside area mm-hmm. go and commit offences in, say, Manchester, Lancashire, Cheshire, I'd be the one they get contacted. Mm. So it's May the 1st, 2014. I say to my team on parade, listen, I need to get off on time tonight because I'm going to be in early tomorrow. I've never got off on time since I've been here. I have to be off on time tomorrow. Shoes of form that afternoon, there was a shooting, um, an armed robbery in Manchester that went wrong. Uh, a firearm was discharged. No one was, no one was hurt, but it's a, it's a big, you know, a critical incident. So I was on the phone trying to get authority from our chief constable or assistant chief constable, which is like kind of the second or the first highest mm-hmm. rank in the police, to get authorizations for our firearms unit to be able to pull over the car and potentially use lethal force. The vehicle was lost, but it was still alive, ongoing scenario or critical incident. One of my colleagues said, uh, one of my staff said, Sarge, get yourself off. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with this before. She had Joe had done it. So I was like, happy days. Got home about half 10 at night, just wolfed down some cereal because I hadn't really eaten that day just with how busy everything was. Mm-hmm. And then I came around at quarter to midnight uh, being worked on by paramedics. I'd suffered a 15 minute grand mal nocturnal seizure in wow. my sleep. Yeah, well, my first reaction was to kick the uh, paramedics out of my house. Really? Honestly, yeah. <laughs> I just woke up groggy. Mm-hmm. just woke up groggy what's doing suddenly there's all these yellow jackets with two not all and I was asking them to get out my wife who's, who's a nurse who's usually in the bed next to me was on the right hand side mm-hmm. and she was crying she said do you think I would phone the ambulance you'd stop breathing I was like no I haven't no I haven't go on lads can you just get out please mm-hmm. I've got work and they went alright Dave don't worry we're, we're, we're going because they're, they're brilliant what do you do for, for a living I said oh, I'm in the police where do you work don't know what's your surname don't know. Wow. I then noticed there was some blood on my pillow mm-hmm. and I bit the back corner of my tongue off. And then there was a searing pain in my right shoulder. I'd, I'd actually dislocated my right shoulder. Wow. So I knew there was something wrong. Got brushed into uh, Arrow Park Hospital, into Resus, where they thought I had bacterial meningitis mm-hmm. because I'd, I was covered in spots. Mm-hmm. Like literally, but my wife Sam said, if you at this point, you wouldn't be speaking, you'd be a lot worse. Basically, my, my seizure was that prolonged wow. that I burst every capillary in my body. So I, I think I'm quite lucky, really, because a seizure over five minutes starves the brain from oxygen. Mm-hmm. And I've gone for 15 minutes, stopped breathing, and I've got no side effects. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I believe I'm very, very lucky. For sure. Long story short, there all day, I'm trying to discharge myself because that's me. <laughs> Obviously, I've been for, I knew there was something wrong because I had CT scan. I had another CT scan with the iodine. And then they said, we want you to go back for another one, but with iodine in it, you know, to, and I knew something not right here. Mm-hmm. And then I was in a room on my own and uh, the consultant came in and said, hey, we've got some news and kind of just broke the news. Just said, unfortunately, you've got a large, what looks like tumour in the front hemisphere of your brain, in the glio region. Mm-hmm. We're not a specialist hospital, but we've liaised with Walton, which is Walton Neurological in Liverpool, which is one of the centre of excellence for, for brain tumours. Mm-hmm. We've liaised with them and, and they believe it. So you've got your appointment on Tuesday. So this was the Friday, but it was a bank holiday. So I had to wait until the Tuesday Wow. to go and speak to someone to see what, what, what this was. And it, that was like horrendous four days, trying to not knowing what's going on, mm-hmm. knowing that something's in my head. And then the thing that kind of got me more was about six months prior, I'd worked the Liverpool to fo- football or soccer, depending if you're in, in America, a heck game. And I'm a big Liverpool fan. And there's a guy who was a big Everton fan, Jim. And we were having a bit of banter. Three weeks later, he suffered a, a seizure and a stroke. And he passed away of a brain tumour. So I thought that was what was going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. So Tuesday, we go into Tuesday. And I'm just so fortunate. I had Professor Eldridge. He's retired now. But he was the uh, he wrote the guidelines 
for neurosurgery for NICE. That's our version, you know, of how it done. So he was the top at his profession. So saw them, they spanned the screen around. There was a large mass the size of a tennis ball in the front hemisphere. Wow. That was an astrocytoma. Uh, grade two, uh, mm-hmm. dif- diffuse. And then I was booked in for surgery six weeks later. Why did it take so long to have surgery? That's, that's what it is. Just because? Just because, yeah. So that six weeks was horrific. Didn't sleep. I kind of referred to my bed like a prison. I'd lie there and I just can't go to sleep. And all I had in my head was, I wasn't even that bothered that I potentially was going to die. It was more, I'm going to leave my wife a widow. She's going to have debt. I'm not going to see walk my daughter down the aisle. I'm not going to see my, my lad grow up to be I know the amazing man he's going to be. And these just kept swirling in my head. Eventually, I'd fall asleep, and then an hour later, I'd wake up, and they'd just kick off. So I did one or two things. One, I'd go downstairs, do some DIY. Yeah, I can't do DIY. But, you know, <laughs> some would come down, I'd have a door off, I'd be painting it. Or, but the other thing that I was told that I wasn't allowed to do, it's like five, six, I want to go for a run. For me, that was my time to let it all out. And mm-hmm. I sound stupid talking about this now, men's mental health and everything, but I didn't want my family to see me weak. Mm-hmm. I didn't want my wife to see me cry or be weak because she was a nurse. She was still had to look after the family. So I'd run and for the first mile, I'd just be crying my eyes, literally just crying my eyes out. Like, Why me? And I, I always used to run past dog walkers. I always kind of think, what did they think mm-hmm. was happening? All they see is this grown bloke and they must think, if you don't like running, mate, why are you doing it? Without no context, you've got me running down down the street crying, going, why me, why me? And yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next kind of mile to two miles, I sort me out and came back in. Six weeks went by and I was booked into uh, Walton Neurological where I was told by Professor Aldridge there was a high chance that I wouldn't make the through surgery. But if I did, it was the chance of aneurysms, bleed on the brains, infections, wow. strokes. But also where mine was, was where my personality was and where my higher level of thinking is. So even if I was to come back, even if I was to make it, I may come back as someone completely different and I'd never know. So that night I wrote mm-hmm. letters to my wife, my sister, my mum and the kids. I didn't think I was going to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, next morning, wheeled down, quite honestly, I really just cried the whole way down. I was put to sleep and I needn't worried. I was speaking within three hours of coming around. I was discharged within three days. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's unreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so how did the story with glioblastoma begin? So, so yeah, so I, I'd already chose to take retirement from Merseyside Police. They were brilliant. Retired. I already had my strength and conditioning qualifications anyway. Mm-hmm. So I started to work as a strength and conditioning coach. Fitness was through the roof. I changed. I was quite healthy anyway. Mm-hmm. But I kind of went down the vegan kind of route. Yeah. Um, you know, meat, acid and alkaline, but I had eggs. Life was going, was flying, doing brilliantly, working with like England Rugby and the RFU within the communities, working with, because um, I was combat sport and rugby specialised, they were the two things. I played rugby at a decent level. Working with uh, UFC fighters, just loving life. You get your driving licence taken off you, obviously with a, with a seizure for a year. Mm-hmm. So it's just gone a year. I just get my driving licence back and I go in to see a random appointment. So I was having scans every three months. Mm-hmm. The thing with Professor Eldridge is he is amazing at what he does, but his personal skills, interaction is not great. I always say to people, it was a bit like Big Bang Theory, with Sheldon, who's so super clever, but he can't read. Mm-hmm. So he was never at meetings. Mm-hmm. So we walked in, wasn't brought in early or anything. We walked in and Professor Elder was sat there with Anna Crofton, who is one of my really good friends now. And she's actually on the board of my foundation. Amazing. And I just thought, oh, this isn't good. And they spam around. It was just a black score, uh, walnut-sized mass mm-hmm. in, the, in the central hemisphere. So it was a new primary yeah. tumour. And I just stood up and started screaming at them. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing radio and chemo. I'm not... You know, I think it was a lot of frustrations because I was given five years to live with the astrocytoma. Mm-hmm. Virtually just over a year to the date, I was looking at another beast, yeah. as we know. But I think that was just the anger more than anything. He said, listen, let's get surgery out of the way, then we'll discuss that. 
I was in surgery that weekend. Dead confident going down for operation, done it before, you know, here we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of all went wrong in surgery because from the scan to surgery, it had doubled in size. That's how aggressive it was. Wow. So when they went in, obviously it was double the size of what it is. So obviously the surgery took longer. I spent longer in hospital. I spent about 14 days in hospital mm-hmm. trying to get on that pain. And then whilst we're in the hospital, Anna comes up to me and my wife with Sam was there and she goes, we've got the histology. Do you want, do you want to know what it is? Because mm-hmm. I like to know everything, you know, I, I research everything. She goes, um, because she's got that built up, that relationship. It was like tears in her eyes. So I just put my hand on her mm-hmm. knee and just went, listen, it's a glioblastoma, multiformer. I've got 12 hours to live. Whatever you say is a bonus now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And she went, yeah, yeah. Do you want to know it all? Um, and I said, is it the usual? As we know, it's three months without treatments or 12 to 18 with, mm-hmm. they say. But mine, because mine was mine was an IDH1 wild type and how aggressive it was. Mm-hmm. Mine was more six to eight months with treatment. So I had a decision, mate, what do I want to do? Do I want to spend the next six to eight months going through brutal treatment mm-hmm. just to pass away? Or do I want to spend the next three months living the best life I can? And I went away and I slipped into a massive depression, a hole. Never been in one before. Just everything was black. I just gave up. I lay on the couch and I was waiting to die. Everything was black. I kind of try and say when I do talks and that, it's if you can imagine like a time-lapse cinematography mm-hmm. where the one thing is stationary in a room and everything is sped up all around. You just see like, that was my life. We only talked about this with my wife, Sam, the other day. She just, she said to me, I was just trying to think of something to kind of spark you back into life to get you out of this rut. And she come up and she said, we're going for a, uh, we're go- let's go for a run. I just laughed at her. I'm not going for a run. She goes, why, why not? I said, why would I? And she goes, sport's been your whole life. You know, I competed at the age of nine, Brinton, ran for England, you know. And I'm like, no, that's that's when I had a life. I'm going to die. Why would I put myself? But as you know, women are always right. So I get dragged out on this run and it is the worst. And she was saying it the other day, she goes, I've never seen you. It was horrific. Mm-hmm. Like I was sat down, I was wretched. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And um, Sam beat me and that never happens. So I knew there was something wrong. Mm-hmm. But that night I felt that little bit better. Mm-hmm. I slept that little bit better. Uh, and the next morning, it's three o'clock in the morning, I have this watershed n- moment. And I kind of, I always credit um, my, my wife, Sam, for this. If I hadn't been on that run, this wouldn't have happened. And I was sat downstairs, three in the morning, pitch black, just crying my eyes up, head in the hand. And I suddenly just went, what are you doing? You said you're going to come away and live the best three months that you can. Mm-hmm. What have you done? You've had a pity party and sulking at the life that, you know, cards that life have dealt you once again. Sort yourself out. Now, I didn't think I was going to survive. Didn't think I'd live. I thought if six to eight months is the average, I've never been an average at anything. Mm-hmm. So there must be people that go before that, but there must be people who get up to 18 months. And at that point, I named my tumor Terry and he was my opponent. And I put myself in a camp like I used to do with fighting. Mm-hmm. And I went, I got mindfulness right, uh, diet, exercise, you know, alternative therapy. And I tackled it 360 degrees, mm-hmm. accepting the gold standard treatment, what it's called over here, to give myself that best chance possible. That's unreal. And yeah. that's incredible. You talk a lot about, you know, you've been through significant experiences in your life, whether it's being run over by a truck to, which is wild, to also, you know, having brain tumor twice to being in the, the armed forces. How do you feel like that prior experience has sort of helped you become the person you are today? I think it definitely has helped. It's built up that kind of mental resilience, but I kind of take it all the way back really to my childhood, uh, how I was brought up. You know, I don't see it as a bad way, but for me, I didn't get beaten in a sprinting race for 100, 200 for, from the ages 9 to 12, to 13. But I never got a well done, never got a, you know, it was always where well, you look to the side, score four tries, you missed the, you missed the tackle. And that was the, the, the male side of my family. Mm-hmm. But I see that's a positive because that's made me want to be the best at everything. Nothing's ever good enough. And I think that relentless approach is why I've overcome a lot of things. I don't know, but this is kind of when I look back on everything that's happened. Yeah, so I bring that. And then obviously growing up in the military, out out in Iraq and Ali al-Salem in Kuwait, 
think they've all kind of built up that resiliency in me, those life experiences that have really helped me to overcome most things. So in, in your previous conversation, you talk like a lot about how you tackled brain cancer from a 360 degree angle, including, you know, supplementation and nutrition and activity. How did you decide to, to do that? And how do you find what works for you in the way that you're now able to help others with the same methodology? Yeah, well, a lot of it is the beginning was trial and error. And mm-hmm. as I said before, I like to research everything. The way I went down the road with that is, um, obviously I was working as a strength and conditioning co- coach, working with professional athletes. And when you're working with them, you're looking for that 1%. Mm-hmm. And that 1%, don't get me wrong, I love what I used to do. That 1% is them not making the team, not getting the knockout. In the grand schemes of life, it doesn't mean anything really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I decided to kind of retrain as a cancer rehabilitation specialist. Went through that and having, say, a, a breast cancer patient or a brain tumor patient cry in front of you because they've been given up on by the NHS, told that they've got like four months to live and that they're still there 18 months later is the most rewarding thing I can ever do, especially the one with the breast cancer. Mm-hmm. She had cording, really bad um, scar tissue from the removal of dissection of all lymph nodes, really good golfer, told she'd never played golf again. She was given up on. She worked with me for six months uh, on rehabilitation and her, her mindset. And then just before Christmas, she became the world. So it's the Peninsula Nero's um, women's uh, champion for 2022. So that That's was incredible. huge. We hit that socials. Yeah. So for me, I'm on that course, you learn so much. It's unreal. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't understand that exercise inhibits cancer growth by up to 50 to 60%, which chemo and radio is only 30 or 40. But with exercise, it has that intrinsically linked to our mental health. Mm-hmm. When we exercise, we kick out all those feel-good chemicals, dopamine, oxytocin, endorphins, norepithin, adrenaline. And that physically changes up the makeup within the brain. It makes it more positive. It alleviates stress, depression, uh, helps to sleep. You've said, remember before, did that little bit of exercise. Mm-hmm. I slept that little bit better. Mm-hmm. It's massive, builds the immune system. And cancer is a disease in the immune system. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what I'm so passionate about is raising the awareness of not just brain tumors, but the power of exercise and mindfulness. Yeah. How would you say, or what would you deal with? Let's say there was a patient that came to you. They say, hey, Dave, I'm newly diagnosed with, you know, XYZ cancer. And I just went through surgery or I'm about to go through surgery. And you know, you talk a lot about physical activity, but let's say someone's not physically able in that situation. Like, how do you work with them and what do you do? It's always, it's not what you can do. It's not what you can't do. It's always what you can do. Okay. Uh, and we have had people who are diagnosed with cancer and don't use the word patients. We're not patients with people. And we work with them. So you do a full assessment with them and we look, there's always something they can do. Physical exercise isn't stupid stuff that I do. You know, it's it can just be going for a brisk walk. That is still going to get the heart rate up. It's, and what, what you tend to find with a lot of people who've been diagnosed with cancer is that they withdraw into themselves. They don't go out. So they, they're socially inapt. Mm-hmm. And isolation is biologically destructive to the central nervous system. You know, we need that human interaction. So for me, it's about getting out into the open, even if it's just a brisk walk, five minutes. But there's always something they, they, they can do, definitely. But it's also the mindfulness. So if they can't do that, we'll work with them online. We'll, we'll, we'll go and visit them. And we talk through how they're getting on, mm-hmm. what the steps they can put in place. And we try and keep them focused. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is proud to sponsor the glioblastoma, aka GBM, podcast. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is a small biotechnology company hoping to make a big difference in the treatment of glioblastoma. Using their proprietary nanotechnology, Biodexa is developing liquid formulations of an investigational drug which can be delivered directly and locally into the tumor via an implanted catheter. This drug has been previously investigated in pediatric patients with brain tumors. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is currently running a clinical trial in patients with recurrent glioblastoma known as the MAGIC G1 trial. To find out more about the MAGIC trial, visit magictrials.com. 
Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gametile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the gametiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, menginomas, gametile therapy is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and a far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gametile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gametile.com. Gametile therapy is an FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Novacure is pleased to support the glioblastoma, aka GBM, podcast. Novacure strives to extend survival in some of the most aggressive forms of cancer through the development and commercialization of their innovative therapy called tumor treating fields. Novacure partners with the glioblastoma research organization to work together on behalf of patients and their loved ones impacted by GBM. To learn more, visit novacure.com. Ruin was built by a team of patients, caregivers, and medical experts, consisting of neurosurgeons, neuro-oncologists, psycho-oncologists, radiation oncologists, nurse practitioners, and social workers who have devoted their lives to treating and helping glioblastoma patients. For anyone navigating GBM, Ruin offers a wealth of medically vetted digestible video answers to common questions. Answers are organized into major topics ranging from surgery to radiation to caregiver mental health. Check it out at Ruin.com. What does mindfulness look like for you? Mindfulness is like, it's having a clear head. It's not worrying about something that you don't have good control of. What is the point of worrying about something that you have no physical control of? And I know that's easier said than done, mm-hmm. but it's something that I've kind of implemented. And when I talk about meditation, meditation, yeah, it is sitting in a room, I legs crossed that. But meditation is anything that takes your mind off what's going on in your external life, those stresses, whether it's cancer, whether it's your treatment, whether it's what you've done at work. And that can be anything from golf, Knitting, reading, going to the gym. That mm-hmm. is meditation. That is mindfulness. We, with the foundation, we also put on um, courses online. We have a waiting list of nearly 60 now to come on our, wow. on our rehab course. So we put on mindfulness for chronic pain, uh, which is done online. It's for me, mindfulness and, and acceptance is, is massively important in the fight against cancer. Yeah. And I think also, you know, you talk about having a positive outlook, which yeah. is super apparent because, you know, walking here all smiles <laughs> and everything. And, you know, what motivates you to stay so positive? Because obviously everyone has bad days, but what do you find that like grounds yeah. you back? Everyone kind of says, oh, you're so positive. Right? Not all the time. Like, there is days, I wouldn't be human. There is days where I wake up and I go, sod this, can't be arsed anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why am I helping everyone else? Why, why, you know, what my situation, I'm just done. But I know at the end of the day, I'll draw a line in the sand. And I say, tomorrow's going to be best day. And I wake up and I'm like, right, you've had your, you've had your moan. Mm-hmm. Let's crack on. When I talk to people, that, that's, that they're important those days. It's when those days lead into the next, into the next, the next. That's when you need your support network, your family, your friends to I, kind of highlight that potentially you're slipping into a mental health, like depression or something. What do you think are your favorite ways that you find mindfulness? I mean, you- are you still doing boxing or I mean, I'm assuming you run. I see that all over yeah. Instagram. <laughs> so like, what else, what else do you enjoy doing? No, um, yeah, I just very out um, the gym. Just, just love the gym. That for me, that's my part of my protocol. I was when I was younger. My mum always said that the teachers brought me in and said, "Your son's got a gift." But if you know, if we could bottle him, but you need basically, I was so hyperactive. Mm-hmm. But you need to channel it. 
you can go one or two ways. You can go down the bad path or good. So for me, I was thrown into sport, which was brilliant. So sport's my kind of leveler. Mm-hmm. If I can't train for six or seven weeks, which happened recently, excuse my shoulder. Yeah, it's it's not great. But yeah, but uh, I like doing that. I love snow. I love being outside, uh, you know, mountain climbing, going snowboarding. So, you know, that's my sort of, mm-hmm. my church is on the side of a mountain. Okay. Yeah, Very not a religious cool. person. Right. But that's where I am. No, I get that. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that when you got your diagnosis, your kids were, were born? Yeah, yeah. So okay. what I think is quite lucky is that they never saw. So my daughter was about to be six. My son must have been about nine. They never woke up in the night with all the paramedics in. They never saw anything that. Wow. So my daughter woke up on her birthday with my uh, mother and father-in-law in the house. Oh, wow. Because we were in hospital. How do you teach them about your cancer experience? And I'm sure, you know, you want to continue to give them this like resilience and positivity as a father. How do you continue to do that? Or how do you do that with them day to day? Just by being there. Because the one thing I'm grateful for having cancer is having a new outlook on life. As I said before, I worked 14 hours a day, never at home. At weekends, I'd play rugby at a high standard. Mm-hmm. On a Sunday, I'd coach it. So I was never there. Mm-hmm. And then what I did is I had a lot of money. We were on massive holidays. But the kids don't want that. They just want you there. So for me, it's me being there, showing up for them. And, you know, even my lad, just last year, he's now, he's about to turn 18, went to, so glad you got ill. It's like, well, why? He says, because you're here. And there's been loads where I've been, I go watch my daughter's amazing um, dra- drama, like mm-hmm. in stage school and everything. And she's Matilda, and, you know, in Matilda. And oh, I wouldn't have been there. Cool. You know, yeah. I wouldn't have been at half of these things. I, I, you know, I've got better relationships with my family. Not that I had bad ones, mm-hmm. but certainly with my sister, because I left home quite early, I could text her, message her once every four or five months. Now I find it physically weird if I've not spoke to her within two days. You know, my whole outlook on life's changed. So for me, it's by showing them positivity, relentlessness, teaching them how I've kind of been brought up. Hopefully, and I, I know it is with my lad so far, he, he's just, I've given three three pieces of advice. So if you never listen to me uh, or learn anything from me, these things, don't be late for anyone because you're basically showing them that your, your time is not worth me turning up. Don't cut corners and whatever you do, be relentless at it and always be kind to people because you don't know what's going in their situation. And, he, and he, he, at the moment, he's flying with what he does. That's so, incredible. Yeah. It's also very good advice. I like yeah. the not being late thing. I also think the same way. I like to be that's, very, that's, that's the military very punctual. <laughs> <laughs> you're late in the military. Yeah, yeah you don't want to know. That gets drum, drummed out of you straight away. <laughs> Speaking of advice, what is some advice you'd give to someone that just got diagnosed with a brain tumor? Um, I'd say they need to kind of go through uh, the cycle. And that's kind of the uh, first, the, the anger mm-hmm. of why me? Because mm-hmm. that's what I did. It's, it just happens in movies, TVs. It doesn't happen to me. Mm-hmm. And then you get, the, the, you know, why? And then it's like, why isn't it happening to the rapists, the murderers, the, the scum of the earth, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Then it goes to sadness. I don't want to die. Cry, cry, cry. Then eventually you get to that acceptance. And that acceptance, actually, it's one and two. So it shouldn't be why me. It should be why not me. Mm-hmm. And then for me, it's go through those stages, scream, shout, cry, get angry because that's a negative emotion that's stored in your body. And when we've got a negative emotion, it causes stress. Stress causes cortisol, cortisol is inflammatory, and we definitely don't want inflammatories in our body. But then the quicker we can switch that flip to fight and to, to attack it, the better chances that, that we've got. What's some advice that you would give to a spouse of someone that just got diagnosed with some type of cancer? You know, you mentioned that Sam was... Why she's still with me, I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that, you know, she's she's been with you for this journey. And is there anything that she did in particular that was like really helpful for you? I know you mentioned like her getting you to go on this run, but like anything yeah. else that you can think of that's just very helpful. 
it's it's hard. It's it's just being there for them, uh, picking them up when when they're down. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's just incredible. And I always said that I know it must be harder for the spouse, for the family, than it is for the person, for my, myself. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to try and fight this. They've just got to be there to kind of support, to help, to pick you up. And I know that for a fact because unfortunately my mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2016. Unfortunately, she passed away in 2018. And although I had this protocol, I had this regime and I was trying to put it on mum, I just felt completely helpless. Mm-hmm. So really, it's just to be there. But also, you've got to speak to people yourself because it's always focused on, on the person who's diagnosed with cancer. No one really focuses on the spouses. Mm-hmm. And that's what our foundation has is, is, is changed. And it's making sure that they have someone to speak to, make sure they have an outlook. Similarly, like I said before, I didn't want my wife to see me cry, you know, the same as the other way around. Sure. But um, yeah, it's just, if, if someone's going through it, it's just be there for them, listen to them. And sometimes you do need to give them a bit of kick up the ass. Right. <laughs> you know, and also speaking of a support system, you started an incredible foundation called yeah. the Head of the Game Foundation. I would love to hear more about, I know what inspired it, but more so like what you guys are still doing day to day and the impact that you hope to make in society through this incredible foundation you've started. It just started about three years ago. I kind of thought, obviously, as we as we know, the stats around brain tumors are horrific. The funding across the world, certainly Britain, is dreadful. And I just wanted to think, how can I make an impact in this world to do with, you know, with brain cancer or help people who are going through similar situations? Mm-hmm. Because I had a very big support network. Imagine someone going through on their own. And that was kind of the drive. I just thought that this idea, then COVID happened and eventually I started as a CIC. So that's that Community Interest Corporation. So it wasn't a charity. Mm-hmm. It's a non-profit organization. So I started that with myself and a guy called, uh, I asked him to come on board, Dominic Matteo. So he's an ex-professional footballer for Liverpool, um, Leeds. European football. Yeah, European. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, soccer. Soccer. <laughs> <laughs> I, do love, I do love your f- football as well, by the way. I'm, <laughs> I'm a basketball person, oh, so there's no. no offense either way. My, one of my, one of our greatest claims to fame basketball is we don't play it. When we were out in in Kuwait, we played we played a three on three against the uh, the Americans, oh, and we nodded it, and we we beat them. Really? <laughs> no, it's funny. My dad's in the the UConn. I don't know if you know University yeah, yeah, of Connecticut. Yeah. He's in like the UConn Hall of Fame. No he was way. like point guard. Yeah. No so my parents there was like a battle. They were like, my mom's like she's gonna be a ballerina. My dad's like she's gonna be a basketball player. My my mom won the fight, just like you mentioned. Sam <laughs> yeah. won that we were talking about earlier about how <laughs> he has three sausage dogs. Yeah, miniature ones as Mini well. Mini ones <laughs> that he won the he, he lost the battle in the dog yeah, fight. So I wanted a Doberman, but. <laughs> Women are always right, aren't we? Maybe one day. <laughs> Maybe one day. Four dogs isn't so bad. Yeah, you, you sound like Earth. It is. <laughs> and sorry, sorry. Continue about the foundation. Um, yeah, CIC, and then brought on this Dominic Matteo um, as well, and just started. And what I wanted to do is put things in place that weren't available when I was going through it. So, you know, I get a brain tumor stuff. There was no, there was no counseling. There was no, I didn't even know I had metal plates in my head. I, I worked that out myself. So I wanted to put in a place, set up something. I didn't have this, this idea to, to support not just the, the person diagnosed with cancer, but also the family. So I went on this cancer rehabilitation course so I, I can deliver alongside, you know, I can work alongside doctors, oncologists, physiotherapists, and prescribe, coach people's daily lives, but also certainly the, the activity side of things. And that's what we started to do. We've then got counsellors involved, family support counsellors, just in case people need to use it. We've only had to, two people have only had to, to use them. Mm-hmm. And we've just slowly started to build out. We became a charity on the 11th of November, which allows us to access more funding mm-hmm. and be able to uh, access grants. Congratulations. Because, thank you. Because mm-hmm. what we, uh, we've we now got, as I said before, we've got a waiting list of about 60 to 70 around the world. And two weeks ago, I just started delivering sessions to Australia, Melbourne, Australia, to Amazing. a girl with a glioblastoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a wait, uh, people in Zimbabwe. We've got three in America, uh, one in South Africa. 
Uh, and it's just built up from there. But not just that, we provide, as I was saying to, to you before, when people donate money to us or do fundraising, unlike a massive global one where it gets sank in, you know, we make sure that they know where that money has gone to. So there was a girl called Libby Wood. She did a skydive, um, raised £1,600, 1600 wow. So what we did is we put that towards a mindfulness course for chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we put it out online uh, and in person. There was eight people on it and that paid for them. The feedback was unreal to how it's helped them, how they use it to cope through their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So a massive, it's not just about the physical, mm-hmm. it's also about the mental and then the emotional as well, that, that support. And we built out, we then brought Kelsey Parker on board. So one of my very good friends was Tom Parker in the boy band, The Wanted. Um, it's actually crazy. I was like the biggest Wanted fan. Really? I, was, I was like such a fangirl. I for sure had posters <laughs> like in my house. I was a big, big fan. Yeah. So. I know how, how big they were. Yeah. Because I've got half of his fans follow me and it's just mental. Yeah. But it's like, wild. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I was, I was really close with with Kelsey and Tom throughout the diagnosis. Unfortunately, he passed away, just come up to it to a year now, which mm-hmm. which was hard. So then just trying to think what we could do. I wanted to keep Tom's name going because um, me and Tom had both been in. So our like Houses of Parliament, maybe it's like the Senate o- over where mm-hmm. you are, speaking to Lords, MPs, yep. uh, so it'd be Senators and, yep. and Congress, debating the underfunding for mm-hmm. brain tumours because obviously brain tumours in this country receive 1% to 2% of the whole national funding towards mm-hmm. cancer, yet they are the biggest killer of adults under the age of 40 and children Mm -hmm. globally. It makes no sense why we are the least funded. And if it was to take, and when we're there, we're not saying we want to take money away from other kind of cancer charities or cancers. But if we were to go being funded the way we are, it'd take us 150 years to get to where breast cancer is currently. Same in the US. Yeah. So that's, so we were in there together, Westminster, you know, and and Tom just had no fills. It was hilarious in there. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to go into what he said. And then unfortunately he passed away. So, and I know, Kelsey's amazing. So I kind of just said, Kelsey, would you like to come on board and be his voice? Because she has a unique experience to mm-hmm. what uh, Dominic Matteo had, had a brain tumor. And that's how I helped him through the dark days and asked him to come on board with, with his reach. And I said, you've got a unique perspective because you, you've lived with someone who's had a glioblastoma mm-hmm. and passed away. I don't have that. I've not lived with anyone. Mm-hmm. And her coming on board has really elevated us globally that's the reason why i think we've gone because when we when we announced it we were live on itv news mm-hmm. it was like an exclusive and yeah we've just because of kelsey and bringing her on board it's elevated us five years ahead of where i could have ever thought of and it's it's brilliant that's we're incredible. now ahead of the game is now bridging the gap in rehabilitation uh, where it's needed it, it, with the nhs have it been able to reach globally now it just really means we're really starting to make a, a mark and the girl in australia amy uh, rose as a testimony saying there's nothing like this in australia mm-hmm. i've never heard anything she didn't think she'd get on it because she lived but you know we we, we raised money and we put about ten thousand pound into the online side of things That's so incredible. we can now deliver what we deliver in our rehabs for our facility globally now that's amazing. Congratulations yeah, thank and, you. You know, on all the success. And I'm excited to continue seeing where ahead of the yeah. game goes. And it's, I'm excited to have you on the show because I think a lot of our listeners that may not have heard about the foundation before are going to be able to hear and be oh, able definitely. to have access to all these resources, which is it's just incredible. So really, really exciting to talk to you. A few rapid fire questions before we finish. What is it like to get radiation? And treatment. It's hard to explain. The, one of the worst bits is actually getting your, the, the mold fitted for your mask. So you're there for like 20 minutes with clay on. It actually takes you longer to get into position than it does the radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. But I always said it's like going into a microwave, getting my head fried. Uh, you go in as one person, you come out as someone completely different. Sometimes I'd be lying there on the on the bed and you'd be thinking something, then then nothing. Um, and I always come out 
frazzled, fried, drained. Uh, it's like, yeah, I always call it, I'm just going to get zapped or microwaved and yeah. you just come out with someone different. And it's, everyone's different. So what, what, you know, everyone's cancer's different. There is a unique to them as their DNA or their fingerprint. Mm -hmm. So sometimes what happens to me doesn't happen to other, but for me, treatment was hard. Uh, I had so many setbacks, it was unreal. Um, in my last week, uh, so I was having dual radiotherapy and chemo. So I was having my chemotherapy mm -hmm. 20 minutes before I was having radiotherapy and in my last week, I suffered a full psychological mental breakdown. Wow. Lost the plot completely. It was nearly sectioned. I was in hospital for four days. And actually what they found out was the reason why this had happened was because I'd been left on steroids, dexamethadone steroids, for too high a dose for too long. And that with the radiotherapy, the chemotherapy, wow. was a perfect storm just to flip. So I've been quite lucky because I don't have to go yearly for mental health checks because mm -hmm. it wasn't my own brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. It was a foreign, the, the, the steroids. And that, yeah, that was, that, was, that was a tough time. What's it like to take chemotherapy? horrendous yeah what is the process um so over here so i'd had chemo and radio so i had 150 milligrams of timozolamide mm -hmm. which i think is the standard for glioblastomas yeah in the u.s as well the same yeah, yeah. Uh, and then i went on to um had six weeks off and then did six cycles so six month cycles so i'd start taking my chemotherapy for five days so obviously it's it's ingested in mm -hmm. tablet form because we have a blood brain barrier mm -hmm. therefore the easiest way to get the chemotherapy in is straight through the stomach unfortunately mm -hmm. so week one so i'd be in it for five days monday to friday that week first first cycle not too bad well i'll say that and then i'll be a two week uh, the second week i'd be recovering feeling like horrendous third week i'd be up getting outside and the last week i'd go to the gym but we're talking really light stuff nothing major but on my first cycle they didn't give me enough anti-sickness tablets antiemetics mm -hmm. so on the last day of taking chemo from nine o'clock in the morning till about seven, eight in the next morning. I was sick every half hour, violently, oh, wow. violently horrendous. So I'd, I'd feel sick, threw up, soaked my clothes, got changed. In the end, I just stayed naked because I just knew it was going to happen. Horrendous. Got rushed to hospital, was put on. So it was cyclozine that I had, which are the cheapest ones. Mm -hmm. So they put me on the drip. That was great because it was completely off my head, you know, and it took away that pain. Mm -hmm. um, second cycle, they gave me more. So another, the sisters, the second month, same thing happened again. The end day, rushed back in. Uh, my oncologist said, we've never had anyone so sick as you. Wow. I was like, okay. So then they tried me on, on Danzatron, which is another antiemetic. Mm -hmm. Same thing happened again, rushed into hospital. And at this mm -hmm. point, I'm thinking if I had a loyalty card for the NHS, you know, I'd have a whole entire hospital named after me by now, the amount of times oh I've used goodness. it. <laughs> so then they said, right, we're going to try on what's called Apriance. It'd never been trialed with a brain tumor patients before. And I was like, okay, guinea pig, great. But that actually worked. And cycle five, and this is where we're going on about like kind of that mindfulness, that trying the ability to kind of forget about things. Mm -hmm. I love rugby, as I think we've discussed. And every year we went down to the, it's called the Six Nations tournament in, in this country. And it's France, uh, Italy, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland. Mm -hmm. And we did it every year. And I just wanted a break. I just wanted a break from the, the reality of what I was going through, the situation and what I was in. Uh, not that you could ever forget it, but I wanted just to have a bit of normality. Mm -hmm. I stopped taking my anti-seizure tablets two weeks before going down with the lads because I was told that I'd never have a seizure again. I'll never try some, so Kepra is the brand name. Mm -hmm. They say that you one drink will be like having eight. Now, I didn't want to get drunk. Mm -hmm. I just wanted one drink with the lads, mm -hmm. just at the rugby. Mm -hmm. So we drove down. We finished taking my chemotherapy tablets on the Friday morning, and we drove down Friday, Friday afternoon to, down to Windsor uh, in, in London. One of my friends, Nick, bailed on me or decided he wasn't coming at the mm -hmm. last minute. So I had to get my old best mate from school who doesn't like rugby to come with us. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, it's a free weekend. All you need is your beer money. So he jumped in. We got down to the hotel at Hilton. They messed the rooms up. So we were all in double bedrooms. So Matt jumped in with me. That night, felt a bit ill, but nothing major. Went to watch the rugby the next day. Came back to Windsor in the evening. I felt horrific. Like really? horrendous. Yeah, I just thought, I just don't feel well, lads. I'm going to go back to the hotel, use all 
carry on. And usually what would happen in Windsor, we'd be out till four in the morning, a few clubs, you know, bars. Uh, I said, I'm going back. My mate Matt went, oh, I'll come back with you. I said, no, don't, you don't need to. I said, just go, go out and enjoy yourself. You know them. He's like, he just got married to Katie, who's lovely. And he wanted to get up in the morning and buy her a present from mm-hmm. Windsor. You know, that mm-hmm. honeymoon period. <laughs> it didn't last long, but <laughs> no, they're still married, by the way. Um, <laughs> so we get back and he goes, you all right? I said, yeah, I just can't sleep. I then came around two days later in hospital in Slough with my wife and my sister there. I'd suffered six seizures overnight. And if Matt hadn't have been in there in that room, I wouldn't probably wouldn't be here now because he raised the alarm. He got the paramedics there. And it was only when they turned up and administered them, I stopped having seizures. I completely dislocated both shoulders and a bit my tongue clean in half. And I was littered in bruises. So if Matt wasn't there, I wouldn't be here today. So yes, oh so that was a massive setback. And then cycle six was okay. I just felt horrific. And I remember watching, I was part of the Tom Parker documentary and Tom is skin and bones. He's on the thing and he refused to do cycle six. And I said to my wife, can't believe he didn't do cycle six. And she just looked at me and said, you refused. I forced you into it. And I don't really remember that, but apparently that's what I was like. Uh, so chemo, it just strips who you are yeah. completely, but not just physically or mentally, emotionally as well. I always thought, well, <laughs> this is what I'm saying. I'm quite quick witted. I'm quite sociable. For four years after, I'd go out with the lads and I had nothing to say. And I'd just be like, is this me now? But slowly it starts, it starts to come back. So chemotherapy, it's, it's, it's a, it, for me, it's evil, but it's a necessary evil. People say, do you wish you'd done it now? I'm like, I think it gave me that, that start because mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't prepared to gamble my family or my life trying the natural route with just three month window. I do think it gave me that head start to be able to put things in place to really get that that 360 plan fully implemented. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's chemo like, therapy like? Unless you've been through it, I can't really explain it. When people go, I must understand, you, mm-hmm. you physically can't. It just destroys who you are. It's like having a hangover, but times 40,000. It just strips you of who you are, who you used to be, like hopes for the future. But you, as I always say to people is, you won't see a, a light at the end of the tunnel, but there is one there. And before you know it, it'll be over. I look back now and this this like eight, eight nine years ago. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I can't believe that's how long ago it was. Mm-hmm. So you will get through it. You know, pain, adversity is temporary, but quitting or not even trying, well, that's it really. Is there anything that helped you during chemo? Like I know you mentioned that like obviously the anti-nausea to yeah. an extent, but like, is there anything else that did help you or make you feel better during the process? Uh, CBD. Okay. It was a good one because it's good for anti-nausea, but it's great for other things. Watching a decent box set on the couch. <laughs> but it is breaking bad. Sat there just watching it all, you know, mm-hmm. trying to take your mind off the, the pain. I couldn't eat. I had ulcers. I had sores. But everything I tasted was metallic. So food became a fuel for me. So it was then looking at proteins with stuff or really spicy stuff or sour just to be able to get that. that to people, all, you know, I deal with people all over the world. I speak to them and they're saying, I just don't want to eat anymore. I'm saying, forget looking at it as a pleasure you have to get that those nutrients in mm-hmm. you have to get that in to be able to keep going through your your chemotherapy because if you drop too much weight you potentially can't have chemotherapy it's mm-hmm. yeah how would you tell people about your diagnosis or like you know if someone has cancer like how would you tell someone about a diagnosis that you newly got i think it's very personal and very subjective the way i did it is when i was in hospital i've got like three really close friends that i've had called them up and asked them to come to hospital and then, and then broke that new, news to them. And then it's just, for me, it was, we didn't want to do it in our house. So we went to, it was, it was the weather was amazing uh, back then. So we, we'd go to a local pub so the kids could, they were only young, the kids could run around mm-hmm. and we sat there and we'd tell people and we'd talk, talk it out. It, it's, it's a hard conversation to throw. I know a lot of people don't want to tell their children what they're going through, mm-hmm. but I'd gone from being never at home to suddenly at home to mm-hmm. then going into, you know, it's, they worked with us. The thing that they did is, they told our kids, my, my wife, Sam, went in there, you know, and they read a book to them and they showed them. So, yeah, so t- telling people the hard one is subjective, but I think you've got to tell people mm-hmm. because those people are going to be there when you're at your lowest and you don't know how strong you'll be 
until your strength is all you have left and they are the ones who'll pick you up. That's really great, you know. Yeah. And, you know, Dave, such a pleasure to have you on the That's show. More pleasure. It's been so much fun. Thank you for, for meeting me. <laughs> Couple uh, hours away in the middle of London. Yeah. Where no it's worries. freezing. <laughs> it is <laughs> so cold. cold. <laughs> um, I really appreciate it. And it was so awesome to have you on the show. And I think a lot of people will really enjoy hearing your story. And I'm super thankful to meet you. It's mm. awesome to finally see yeah, man just, in person off well, of Instagram. There so you go, yeah. I'm famous it. for having counts. It's just all, what I always <laughs> wanted. But uh, just if you're out there, just remember that there is another way. There is another option and there is hope. I remember the, uh, the, the signs, the doctors and that, they go off averages. And just remember that you're not average. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at Glioblastoma Research Organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org, where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week. Welcome back to another Deep Dive with Staff Strong. Today, let's talk about this episode with Dave Bolton. What was your biggest takeaway? Yeah, he, he got into, I think it was towards the end, a bit about how to tell others about your diagnosis, right? Coming from a, a patient's perspective. And mm -hmm. that's a really hard question, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think it's something that we oftentimes, people come to us, right? As we're helping them through those early stages of like, how do I tell everyone, right? Yeah. I'm trying to be there for my loved one. We're going through so many appointments and treatments and how do you keep everyone apprised or how, what's the right way to tell people? Who do you tell? Who don't you tell? Again, I think it's a very similar conversation to grief for everyone. And there's no right or wrong kind of way to do it, but know that it, it shouldn't be something you have to worry about. Yeah. Right. I think that's what it comes down to for me as I, if I put myself back in those early day shoes, it was something we thought about, right? Like I didn't know how to tell anyone. How do you, how do how yeah. did you, right? Like what did you do in those early days? Like by the time you found out, like what, how were you telling other people? I felt like I didn't share it publicly. Mm -hmm. Obviously, my whole family knew. And I remember I was fortunate that I had, like, a, a nanny that lived with me my entire life. And she was, like, second mom. Like, she's still part of our family to this day. She was so close to my dad. So, like, she was the first person that I probably told. And I remember I had to, like, think about how to tell her. We, like, went to lunch. I was like, it's, it's just so hard to come out and be like, my dad has brain cancer. Because yeah. then, like, the other person is, like, when I found out, I was just like, what? What are you talking about? And it's it's not easy by any means, but I feel like... I kind of just like picked like the handful of people that I wanted to mm -hmm. know what was going on that I felt like were close enough to my family that it was important that they knew what was going on. And I kind of just was like, this is the situation. And but like, I mean, looking back even now, it feels like I just fully like blacked out. And like totally. I, I don't remember like a lot of that time. And I feel yeah. like everything is fully a blur. I couldn't tell you. I remember I called my best friend and told her, but it was her birthday the day that I found out. So I was like, I can't call her on her birthday and tell her my dad has brain cancer. So I think I called her the day after and she started crying. And it's just like, it's hard because like you're also dealing with these emotions. I can't imagine how it is from a patient perspective yeah. by any means. But I remember just my particular situation. And I just like called my friends and I was just like, my dad has brain cancer. And they were just confused. Like, and I was confused. And mm -hmm. you, you kind of cry for a little bit. And you just don't really know what to do. And it, honestly, you kind of just like black out. Mm -hmm. And then I woke up here five years later. Yeah. So like... That's that's one thing. But I do remember my dad didn't want to necessarily tell people. I don't think it was right of me to do this. But like looking back, I kind of was like, you have to tell people. And I not that I forced him to, but I was like, you, you have all these friends, people that care about you and like 
patients that you talk to all the time, you can't just like disappear off the face of the earth. And Mm -hmm. like, I think he didn't want to tell anyone because he was really upset that that was his diagnosis. But there was a lot of, you know, he was a chiropractor. He had a lot of like, he was part of this like medical group and he had a lot of different friends. And I was like, you have to like tell your friends, like, and he didn't really want to, but he ended up doing it. They sort of decided like if they wanted to like, you know, kind of get more involved or kind of just be like, I'm going to remember your dad as like how he was and I don't want to see anything to do with him. I think it was hard for him as a patient to tell people. I think he he just, he didn't want to. But I also meet a lot of people through the organization that are really comfortable sharing their story and find a lot of really great support through sharing it. So for me, again, like, you know, back to the original question after my super long tangent, I found it important to tell people that were closest to me. My dad wanted to tell no one and, you know, people that I see all the time through day to day on social media are telling everyone mm-hmm. so I, I think it's just you kind of have to go with your gut yeah. I mean what about you yeah I think that's a good point go with your gut right mm-hmm. like do what do what feels right for you and realize there's no right or wrong we were you know interesting part for us is we we try to keep it like to get, again we have no aunts and uncles right I have no grandparents so like from a from a number one route I mean it was five of us I actually so my brother had a seizure we were supposed to meet up that night his best friend thank goodness was with him does a lot with special olympics and was used to what my brother went oh, through so he, yeah he, it was actually a really important part of it when he called me, I still remember, like, when he called me, I, I was two hours away, and I, I thought it was a joke. It was so odd to me. And, like, it didn't process, like, two hours later. And I, I, I got an Uber, and I came back, and I met him there. And, and I was the one who had to call my mom and dad. And That's I had to call my sister, right? Yeah. Like, so even it, even taking a step, really, to the, to the premise of it, I had to break that news to my parents and my sister. And, like, that was the hardest thing I ever did. And I think because of that, I didn't want to have to call anyone else. So I got, had to tell my parents, their firstborn son, it's hard. had a brain tumor. I had to tell yeah. my little sister, right? Our, our, our baby sister that their, her oldest brother had a brain tumor. And flash forward to, as we tried to figure out who to tell and how to tell, I remember my mom kind of, well, I told this person, make sure we tell this person. And someone recommended Caring Bridge. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that or it's basically I've heard a, of the name before. Yeah, it's basically a platform, right? It's it's your now it's Facebook basically, but Caring Bridge where like you don't have to worry about who's your friend or who's not your friend. You post it, like we we posted the update and everyone could share it, right? Like it immediately took the burden of like, well, how was surgery? Well, oh, how was interesting. this? Well, how was that? Right? Like I remember very early on like having to text the 50 closest people and being like I wish I would have known about this that. This is what happened I today. I literally had to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what we did in the very beginning then we we started to do this Caring Bridge and again, everything works differently for different people mm-hmm. but i i can like vividly recall a bit of a immediate burden lifted from us because we didn't have to think oh gosh is is our neighbor gonna think we're not thinking of them yeah by letting them know what just happened when i'm like mom we're you just got out of brain surgery right like so mm-hmm. caring bridge for us was a really good avenue obviously this is before stash strong to do that and then for us stash strong kind of became a point of ultimate visibility of what my brother was going through and our events were ways to like see my brother. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of what worked for us. And I, that's why I thought this hit when he said that was interesting because I remember struggling with that. And I have families that like, how do I tell his best friend who lives 20 states away? It's like, mm-hmm. you just, you have to find a way. Again, some people, like you said, your dad don't want to tell other people. I think everyone responds to it differently that yeah. hears it. So that's the difficult part. And, and I, I think they want to support, right? And so when they're not aware, they can't do anything and it just kind of makes the situation even harder, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's tricky for sure. I also noticed that, you know, through the organization and since we've started our Warrior Wednesday series, we share stories, but even more so that I feel like all over Instagram now, there are a lot of people just sharing, you know, they're creating accounts. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think even the episode with Amani's parents, how they mentioned that the account was first started to share all this information 
about their daughter because it is extremely taxing to Mm. message hundreds of people. I mean, at least for me, I was at the hospital with my dad all the time. And then it's like my mom, you know, she'd be working, so she'd come in and out. But like I was, you know, I was post-university, like not working, so I was just kind of there all Mm -hmm. the time. And so doctors were telling me all the information. And so I'd have to spend 30 minutes on the phone with my mom giving her the full update. And then I would have to call my grandparents because they were, you know, they're, they're still alive. So I would have to give them the full update. And then it's like, okay, who do I have to call next? My dad's sister. I have to give her the full update. And then I'd have to call like my grandma, like my great aunt, so my grandmother's sister who was alive at the time. It's a lot. Yeah. Like how taxing was that on you? I, I didn't want to talk to anyone. Yeah. And it was also, you know, it was hard for me because I became this like point of contact. And so people kind of came to me yeah. for every single thing. And I was just like, guys, like, I'm a kid. I was literally 21 at the time, mm-hmm. and like it was hard. I mean, you were also young. You were yeah. you were 25, as yeah. you said. Like, how was that for you? Yeah. Again, I think before you know, before carrying a bridge, which like yeah, we we also bridge. shared a lot. We went to the same university. Yeah. My brother and I, so we shared a lot of friends. So it, it was it was my brother's story to tell. Right. Mm-hmm. Again, if you talk about those first couple months with brain surgery and chemo, and what's what's this word that I have now, right? Glioblastoma. Um, it was his to share. So like I sometimes like. I had friends that were like, they were definitely my friends. Like I could talk to them about it and let them know. But, you know, he, and he was also nonchalant. You know, he was like, oh yeah, shoot him a text, right? Let him know where I'm at, right? It depends on the patient and the individual going through it. But mm-hmm. I do, I like, I just, that's why that part resonated with me. Cause I do vividly remember like, okay, we've been at the hospital all day. My mom and parents are staying at my apartment now, right? And we're gonna go back again in the morning, right? Cause they don't live in New York City. Mm-hmm. And we get home and she was on her phone, like having to text so many people. And I, and I don't really think we processed it cause you're just, you get back and you're just like yeah. zombie. Yeah, for sure. But that was a lot of added pressure and, and stress on my mom to have to update everyone what was going on with her son, mm-hmm. right? So again, Caring Bridge became that avenue for us. And so I can't remember who recommended it. So glad they did. And, and I've seen it over the years be used with different patients. It's a way that I can sometimes stay close, right? Because Facebook's tough, you have to like go to the pro, you know, mm-hmm. there's so many weed through things, but Bridge was just kind of journal entries, right? Yeah. Of what people were going through, updates, and it was a way for me to, you know, especially in the early days of Stash Strong, when we only knew 10, 20 patients going through it, I could kind of keep tabs and see how everyone was doing. And then I could know to reach out if something drastic changed. And, and what it did is it made sure they didn't have to say, okay, I got to text Colin that there was a recurrence today. It's like, no, take that pressure off you. Put it again, if you're willing, able, mm-hmm. and comfortable yeah. with doing that online, that became a really good avenue for us. Definitely. Yeah. I think it was great to hear Dave's perspective too, because you know he is a long-term patient. He's he, he's thriving. He's mm-hmm. doing great. So it's I think it's really interesting to hear how he dealt with things and sort of from a different perspective that obviously you and I don't have. So I think it's obviously everything is circumstantial and it's nice to hear different people's perspectives because those that listen to this podcast are a huge mix of mm-hmm. patients, caregivers, doctors, like it's, it's everyone. So I think it's nice to have these different perspectives, definitely. Yeah, and I think it helped coming from him, right? Yeah. I, I think his energy and- It's amazing. His perspective were, I mean, eye-opening, right? Yeah. I, I, I was captivated by listening to him speak. Even he had to think about that, right? Sure. So I think it, it kind of- if you realize that even the most outgoing person on camera or visually is also thinking about that, it's happening in each family that is faced with this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us on another segment of Deep Dive with Stash Strong.